Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And I was like, all right, this shot is going to be like Goodfellas. And then this shot's going to be like Scarface. And then this shot is going to be like, you know, I went for all the cliches of music videos. And I, I hated myself after that. I didn't do what I wanted to do. I did, I did what they wanted to do. And I felt like I was a whore. And I didn't pick up a camera for two years after that. I'm Justin J. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. New York City in the 1990s was a very different place. Downtown was an affordable and fertile ground for youth culture, hip-hop was anti-establishment, and marijuana was illegal. At the time, Cypress Hill's unapologetic lyrical references to weed and getting high were viewed as disruptive and revolutionary. Today, hip-hop has been fully embraced by corporate America, and you can buy pre-rolls and THC gummies at the corner store. As the notorious bed sage Christopher Wallace once said, things done changed. Our guest today has been a fixture in downtown New York for over three decades. He's been documenting skateboarding, graffiti, and hip-hop culture long before your aunt started using the term for shizzle. He's directed music videos for the Beastie Boys, Cypress Hill, Fat Joe, House of Pain, and he's collaborated with celebrated streetwear brands like Supreme, Stussy, and Billionaire Boys Club. His credentials are unassailable, but at some point, it becomes inevitable that you're no longer the youngest person at the party. So what does maturing gracefully look like for someone who's forged a successful career by knowing where to be, who to shoot, and what's up? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with the man behind iconic music videos like House of Pain's Jump Around and Gratitude by the Beastie Boys. Today, 
director, photographer, DJ, and a former bike messenger with some deft roller skating skills, Mr. Dave Shady Perez. Dave Shady Perez, thanks for sitting down, man. I really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been it's been a minute trying to organize this, but as always, sorry, as always, no problem. Um, so it's funny, you know. I, w- I was thinking, I feel like you and I have been on, hey, what's up, on the street status for. 25 years now, you know, but it's really, we've never broken bread. It's exciting to get to sit down and like really get inside your head. And I was thinking, now, do you remember, we actually spent New Year's Eve together one year with the whole snowboarding crew in the early nineties at the Nevely hotel up in the Catskills. That's that's really funny because, um, I had forgotten about that. That was such a weird, that was like in a, a transitional part of my life when I was hanging out with Gunars, living with Gunars. And and rubbing elbows with the snowboard community, and I forgot who who was it that that made that happen. I think it was I didn't know him, but it was this guy Jason Slutsky, who's I think his family owned the resort or something. But yeah. my connection was my girlfriend's best friend was dating this guy Nick from FR, and that was the connect. I don't know. You're drawing a blank. No, <laughs> Nick. You're talking about. The Nick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, The FR Nick, who's now part of Olives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was Nick's last name? That I don't know. And it's funny because I used to work at Jerry's at some point too. And his wife was running Jerry's and she she fired me. Jerry's 105? Yeah, across from Stussy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Small world. Yeah, yeah. It's like Stussy, that's the one who married Nick. Nick. Yeah. She was managing Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I used to work with Brian McNally, who his company spawned all these restaurants and Jerry's 105 was yeah. one of those places that came from the McNally, you know, consortium of, of hip eateries. It's uh, it's so interesting. I feel like for a short period of time, those couple of blocks on Prince street from like, let say Broadway to West Broadway, it was like, that was the coolest couple blocks in the nation. Like it was yeah. such a cool little zone. You know? you know, I was a, I was one of those bladers. I was an early Gay blader. <laughs> what's, what's that joke? It's like um, the hardest part of it. You can't say that anymore. <laughs> Don't get me canceled on my own podcast. Well, it's it's funny because I, I hate because everyone's always saying, "Oh, you know, you shot stuff for Supreme. You you work with all these skaters," and they're like, "Are you a skater?" I'm like, "I'm a skater because I've been skateboarding since 1976. I have photo proof of it, right? But you know, I was never." You know, like a, I was a Bronx ro- escape skater, roller skater, and then I got into rollerblades, and I was really, really fucking good, and like jumping five garbage cans at a time in Washington Square Park, and like do like right before there was hardcore rollerblading, I was I was like an early pioneer of of like extreme rollerblading. Nice, but I don't I don't usually admit it. Well, on that same topic, so we had we had photographer. Glenn Friedman on the podcast a while back. And yeah. it seems like both of you guys really have this, this uncanny. I used to rollerblade with him with short, <laughs> with tight shorts on. <laughs> I'll, make, I'll, I'll make sure to, uh, to tell him you said that. Um, but it seems with, like you guys. With my shirt rolled up like this. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, just joking, Glenn. You, you guys both seem to have this like uncanny ability to really be in the right place at the right time. And almost like a, 
a Forrest Gump level of serendipity to be able to place yourself, to be able to document all these really interesting things and all these really interesting people. And, and I'm wondering, is that just a product of you loving people and loving to be out and just being in the mix? Or is it, is it more complicated? Is it more calculated than that? Um, I can attest to seeing, seeing something and wanting to be part of it and then trying to figure out, it's like, it's that adage where it's like, you know, you knock on the front door. If you can't get in, you knock on the side door and you can't get in and then you go to the back door. It's like trying to get in, even if you don't belong, but trying to, you know, be, become part of something that won't have you as a member. And the challenge of it. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of it. Like I, I remember I was supposed to be finishing college and, and uh, I wanted to become a bike messenger and I don't think I knew it was cool. It just, I mean, I, I think I saw something and I was like, oh, it's kind of dope. Oh, wow, you can make $500 a week riding a bicycle? I, want, I love riding bicycle. And then I bought a mountain bike. And then I saw all the guys riding fixed gears. And then I learned how to ride a fixed gear. And then that became a thing. So I think it's, it's like osmosis. It's like you put yourself in certain places and then you're like, oh, you know, that that seems cool. I want to, you know, get with that or she seems cool. I want to be around that girl or I'm, that guy. And then just trying to figure out or seeing things and then finding angles, like being a bike messenger. Like I was always obsessed with graffiti and being a bike messenger. You rode around different buildings and then every building I'd go into, I'd say, why is Futura's name in this building? Why is Dandy's name in this building? Why is Zephyr's name? And then all of a sudden there was this awakening that all the graffiti artists were bike messengers. And then I became friends with all these bike messengers that also happened to be memorable graffiti artists. But it was, it wasn't planned. It was just like something I noticed. And then, and then I was like, Oh yeah, I'm friends with Dundee and I'm friends with Futura and they really amazing writers. I mean, they, they weren't on the level they are now, but they were you know, like street icons at the time. And then you're like, Oh wow. You know, like, yeah, they're, they're cool people. I ride bicycles with them and stash, you know, like there's so many relationships that came out of, being a bike messenger. I mean, because you, you always seem to have surrounded yourself with, with with really interesting people. And, you know, that in and of itself is not that hard. But what you did that's more important is you were able to parlay those relationships into a really prolific and, and creative career, which not, not everybody could do. And, you know, I'm wondering, did you have a vision early on that you wanted to be a photographer or you wanted to be a video director? Or was that really just something that grew organically out of being in this scene of interesting people and having access to document them and be around them. Yeah, I had no clue. I probably, I got kicked out of Catholic school. I ended up in public school. I took acting, an acting class in senior year. And I remember, this is probably going to show my age, but in the acting class, there was uh, a letter that came across to the acting department and it said, Stanley Kubrick is looking for people to submit VHS tapes for a war movie he's making. And I was like, oh, I want to be in that movie. And I was like struggling to find someone that had a VHS camera so I could do an audition tape. And I, I got an audition tape out, but I think I missed the deadline by a few days. But I sent it out. And that was like me kind of knowing that there was a film business, but I didn't know that you could have a career. I didn't know if it, Film or photography was a career growing up in the Bronx. I had no mentorship. I had no guidance. Um, I went I went to school for fashion design because I knew how to sew. And when I got to FIT, 
some girl wanted to do my portrait. And then when I saw the results of her taking my portrait, I was like, wow, I, I, I had done photography. I used to photograph my girlfriends and, you know, I was documenting the Bronx in the early 80s. But I didn't realize it could be a career. And then this girl who was studying photography at FIT, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me. I was like, I want to do that. And then I, I was doing uh, fashion buying and merchandising at FIT. And then, and then I, I started to assist photographers after that. And how did you first get in your door in terms of assisting? Because I assisted for five years, and this is, I'm probably both of our eras, was a time, certainly before social media, kind of before the internet, before Craigslist. I mean, none of this stuff was like, it wasn't like there was bulletin boards with like job available. It was like strictly word of mouth. Like, how did you first kind of find yourself into that cycle and in the scene? I was bike messengering and I met this girl that was working uh, for a photographer's rep. And then she, she hit me up and she's like, hey, you know New York really well. I got this French photographer named Randall Mesden and he is, you know, he needs... T- someone that kind of like, like a fixer. And I made friends with this guy and he's like, oh, Shady, you know, you, uh, I got the name Shady from being a bike master. He's like, Shady, I need a location that looks like a gas station. I'm like, oh, I got this place. Oh, Shady, I need a place that looks like a warehouse. And I'm like, oh, I know this place over here. And I became his kind of like location man fixer. Then he was like, oh, I need a cool looking, uh, bicycle rider that does tricks. And I'm like, oh, I got my boy Maya. He's, uh, French, Vietnamese, French, uh, Korean kid, beautiful. And I became kind of like his casting location fixer. And then I started assisting him because he started taking me everywhere. And I, and I became like his personal assistant fixer. Um, that got me in the door. And then I started working with Ken Nahum, who was a celebrity photographer. And I was the kid that, you know, came in and was sweeping the floor every day. And then someone's like, oh, here, this is how you load a Hasselblad. Oh, cool. Hey, this is how you plug in a, a brown pack. Don't don't electrocute yourself. And, the Speedatron Browns, don't, yeah. don't, don't let them arc. Yeah. And, you know, then I started to really learn how to, like, coil a cable and learn lighting. And I went from fourth assistant to third assistant to second assistant to the taking over for the first assistant at one point from this guy, Marco Baboldi. But, I mean, you know, Ken Nahum was, like, working with, you know, like an A-list photographer that, you know, like, oh, we're going to be shooting, um, you know, Whoever. Bill Clinton tomorrow, and then we're going to be shooting Oprah next week. You know, he was like Andy Leibowitz's now, but he was like photographer, you know, of the celebrities. So, you know, you've you've toggled a lot between both still photography and video over the course of your, your career. And what I find really interesting about still photography is it seems like it's kind of the last step on the spectrum where you're able to have creative control over almost all of the elements. In other words, like if you're on a big photo still shoot, you probably had some input on the casting, the location, the lighting, certainly the equipment that you use. And then as you start to scale up, like let's say into a music video or certainly into like a feature film, now you have a casting director and you have a lighting crew and you have a cinematographer and all these responsibilities kind of start to fragment, you know? And for someone who's kind of worked in both of those fields throughout your career. Like, I'm curious, like, what what do you bring to the table? What's your main skill set? Is it your ability to kind of deal with egos and personalities? Do you have a really strong tech background? Like, what's your, what's your skill set that you bring to the table, no matter what you're doing? In video or photo or both? Both. Um, it's weird, because uh, when I first started doing... Well, you know what's funny? It's, it's like when, when you start working with... with 
bigger people. And then some of the mystique is taken away and you're like, I could do that. You know, then you start having these visions of like, he's getting paid, you know, 20 grand a day. I, I could do it. I could push that trigger. I set up the whole shot. I lit it. You know, like all he's doing is talking shit and then pressing the button. Yeah. You know, so you start re- realizing like, oh, you could do that. And then, and then you realize that, that the real talent is dealing with people. To me, is it, I, I, every time I'd meet a photographer and he's like, yeah, I'm so good. I, that guy sucks. And I was like, you know what? There's a million great photographers, but how they're going to interact with the person that they're talking to or they're trying to get something out of is, that's, is that's a big skill. Yeah, everyone, yeah. you know, put the camera on automatic. My blind grandmother can take a great picture, but will they be able to get that person to laugh? Will they get that person to, you know, evoke something that you want to bring out of it? Um, my friend Baron Claiborne, I was interviewing him uh, on a panel and, and he was basically saying, you know, the, the key is like manipulating someone to get what you want from the image or, you know, you, you, what you want to get out of that person for your, you know, it's being selfish. It's like, what am I, what can I get out of them? And I think that's, it's terrifying me. I've always been like an, what's the word? It's like a, an extrovert that's introverted or, you know, like I've always been a very shy. shy. Extrovert. Yeah. yeah. I've always been really shy. And then it's like, I gotta, I gotta break out of the shyness to ask the girl out. And, you know, it's like, you keep doing it then, you know, but it's always like, Oh, I'm going to get an ulcer. You know, I really like her. I've always been, afraid to do things, but I do it anyway, just to like try to snap out of that fear. And like, I remember directing my first music video and the morning of, I was terrified. I was, it was for Cypress Hill and I'd never directed anything. I kind of like faked it until this point. And I remember that morning, like looking in the mirror and I was thinking of, I think it was like Raging Bull and like you're, you're looking in the mirror right before and you're like, all right, it's like showtime. You know, like I would say to myself every time I look in the mirror and they're like, all right, showtime. And you got to like psych yourself out, you know, like, you know, put my friends like you got to take your balls in your hand and you have to like to say, fuck it, you know, but I've always been terrified. But it's like once you put yourself there and then you get the adrenaline going and then you're like, okay, all right, it's great. You look dope. Give me it again. All right, that's great. Can we do? I think that's the skill set I bring. Yeah. No, I think. I mean, and ultimately, I think that's something that you can't bottle. I mean, that's that's what makes a great photographer. And, and it's such a trap. It's funny that you know we both come from assisting circles because it's a real easy trap. At some point during your assisting career, you start to get a little bit bitter, and you're like, I fucking set up all these lights. Yeah. I loaded this shit. Like I know. I and, and then you realize that, like it doesn't matter. It's that person that's like getting that decisive moment and creating the personality like that is the photo it's the, the tech shit is is incidental yeah it's i photograph I drop some drop some names i used to photograph pharrell a lot for catalogs for his clothing company and pharrell when you know he'd have to do like 18 you know 12 to 18 different outfits you know i, I basically only needed to take three or four images right because what he did was he put on a very neutral face and then he just, you know, wore the clothes and, uh, you know, I probably took like 50 shots for each setup, but I didn't need to. And it was frustrating because I could never get anything out of him. And then one time I was after the shoot, I was like, Pharrell, I would really love, to, I, I was like the whole shoot, I was like, I wanted to get more out of you. He's like, yeah, I know. He's like, I, I got to put, he's like, it's so much, he goes, I'm in photo shoots every day to do certain things. You know, it's draining for me. And I was like, could you do me a favor? I was like, I got my you know, my, my film camera, my, my G2, my contacts G2. I was like, could I just do one roll of you just like having fun? I was like, just give me some, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And after a whole day of shooting, he gave me for 34 frames, 35 frames, he gave me from being all day kind of like stoic and kind of like for every frame, all of a sudden he was like, you know, hanging out the window, being silly, like doing Egyptian poses. He was doing everything I had wanted to do all day. But if I didn't ask him afterwards, I'm like, Joe, just give me a role. And he was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And it's like one of the best roles I've ever taken. That's what's so magical about photography because it took you, it took you all day and all that work and all that film and it all came down to those last 30 frames. Yeah, I think I even had the camera on automatic. <laughs> it was like flash, like pop, pop. That's and amazing. Then, yeah. So, you know, as you as you scale up in the size of these productions, and you've done a couple pretty big music videos over the course of your career and big productions, it also scales up the propensity for things to go wrong. There's a lot more money involved. The stakes are higher. There's more people involved. Do you have, like, one experience that stands out that was just the most nerve-wracking time on set? Or was there a, a mistake that uh, you made? What's could, the biggest put, mistake you put, made? Uh, there's, there's a few, I don't know, mistakes. There's mistakes I've had a few. Ooh, I feel like this is breaking into a Sinatra song right now. Um, I mean, other people have made terrible mistakes. I think, I don't know, mistakes I've made. This big pun, I don't want to say it's a mistake, but I, I, I took on, I did the last big, big budget music video I did was a big pun, I'm not a player video. And I wrote the concept. I edited the video. I shot the video. Full auteur. I, yeah, I was, but the I the, I did that video, and then I never wanted to make music videos again. So the almost like a mistake was that I had written an amazing concept for the music video. It was, it would have been seen now as one of these very experimental kind of like edgy videos, I think, because the whole concept of the original Big Pun video was to make him kind of like kingpin, this like big figure from the, it was going to be like a comic book style music video where he's a bigger than life character. And I was going to hire all small people. And, and he was just going to seem like this giant tower. Yeah. It would have been like a, like a Tim Burton adaptation of a comic book or, you know, DC or Marvel. And, and I had the help of a writer from uh, the Letterman show and I wrote this incredible concept. And when I gave it to the you know, Big Pun's team and, and the record label, it was so well-written that they didn't get it. You know, they, they couldn't envision it. Maybe I should have done storyboards, but they didn't get it. And, you know, now everyone does treatments and they do these PDFs and they do all this amazing, but it was, you know, in 2000, it was really hard to get images and copy and paste and put it into a PDF. Yeah, there's no uh, now you could do it Pinterest in, you know, and mood boards. Yeah, yeah, it was a pain in the ass. You had to like actually buy magazines and cut them out. But, um, my mistake was that I didn't stick to my guns and make that. I eventually watered down the concept because I didn't want to pass up. Uh, it was it was the biggest budget. It was like quarter of a million dollar budget. So then I watered down the concept. And I was like, all right, this shot is going to be like Goodfellas. And then this shot's going to be like Scarface. And then this <laughs> shot is going to be like, you know, I went for all the cliches of music videos. And I, I hated myself after that. I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't do what I wanted to do. I did, I did what they wanted to do. And, and I felt like I was a whore and I was really disappointed in myself. And I, I didn't pick up a camera for two years after that. Was the alternative not doing it at all in terms of you probably would not have gotten the job or do you feel like you compromised I mean, and you didn't have to? I probably, in hindsight, I probably should have explained it better and, and maybe done some extensive storyboards and, and really 
sold them on the concept, or maybe I was just being too selfish, but I was looking at the, the people that I idolize and I was like, I want to make a music video that's going to be legendary. And and I did something that I thought was mediocre and I was so disappointed in myself. But What about something that maybe wasn't your fault on set, but what was, is there one just curveball that was thrown at you that, oh, yeah. that you had to kind of adapt and deal with? We did a Gravediggers video. Um, Gravediggers is, you know, four members of different rap groups. And uh, the RZA was the, you know, the main character of, of this music video. And the concept for the, is called Nowhere to Run, Nowhere to Hide. And it was a one day shoot. We were shooting all over Manhattan. And the ending of the video was going to be in the Rambles in Central Park. And it was a crazy video. It was like, I had a slave, a, a guy dressed as a slave with chains and shackles with like torn shorts, barefoot, no shirt on, running through midtown Manhattan with a camera car following him. And he's running with, with chains on. Gorilla style, no permits? Like No permits, of course no permits. I'm the king of no permits. Um, never had permits. No, we had permits, but we didn't have... Not for that. Not to film all over New York City with a black guy in chains dressed as a slave <laughs> running through the streets of Midtown. It was it was quite a scene. Um, so it finished off. We 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 went to the the Rambles in Central Park. And if you don't know where the Rambles are, there's a very dense part of the park where gay men go and meet. <laughs> but it's it's like it's like a forest. It's like really dense and there's not really that many paths. And we smoked it up. And we, I, I had mirrors, I had these giant mirrors and I, I did this like Bruce Lee thing with the mirrors in the park and the Rizzo was nowhere to be found. He was missing for eight, we, you know, we, we based our shoot day on, on uh, 12 hours. He was missing for eight hours of the shoot. He was living in Staten Island. We had put him in a hotel near Central Park. So we had him, he was MIA, no cell phones. Yeah, everybody had like pagers, you know, this is... 90s, right? 97. I forgot exactly the year. We didn't know. You know, we were thinking of like these, you know, because there's a lot of stories of hip hop where people don't show up or they get arrested. And almost near the end of the video, he shows up and he, we were like, dude, where were you? We've been looking. We've had sent people to Staten Island, people looking in the hotel. And he's like, oh, my baby was sick. I'm like, what? I'm like, whatever. Okay, we got to, we have like six scenes, you know, we had to, finish up the video we had to like change the narrative because he was missing for most of the video and you nailed it um yeah you know we, we got we got the shots we had to change the concept a bit but it was i mean we we figured he was gonna be a no-show but then he he showed up at right at the very end and oh. we got we got the shot for every music video i've done there's there's a story where either i should have cried or gotten drunk or you know like it, it, there's a part where it's like i'm just banging my head against the table and i'm like why am i doing this why am i doing this when you're hiring for a small business you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through linkedin jobs your time and capital are precious and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Um, so I was watching the, the House of Pain video recently that you directed, and I always love to do this thing. When I, when I watch a music video, I always try and kind of reverse engineer what the treatment must have been like for that video. Like, do you remember what that pitch was? Yeah, I actually, what's funny is when I was talking about mood boards, what I did was I had taken my Polaroid camera and then I would I would pause a movie and I was taking still frames from different movies and then cutting cutting them onto uh, I have it somewhere um, I should frame it I had still frames from uh, the movie 1984 uh, dystopian book that that became a movie with John Hurt and I remember like I, I really wanted this like desaturated kind of grainy, you know, like dirty tile look. And I ended up shooting scenes in my bathroom on Mott Street. And I remember we took uh, Bustello instant coffee and kind of stained the tile to make it look really nasty. Um, but the, the concept was was loosely based on, um, shit, what was that that movie? The Irish movie? Um, State of Grace? State of Grace. There State of go. Grace was a big influence and my whole thing was to try to get get looking really like a like an like an old Scorsese film, you know. Like I, I wanted the grittiness. I was living in Little Italy, and I wanted to use the church on Mott Street. And I had a casket in the video, and I remember that the casket was supposed to be like Marky Mark, you know. Like there was like all this weird <laughs> shit that I was throwing in there like okay you know like it's it's based loosely on an irish funeral and the and in the bar we shot at the old town tavern and we had the casket in the bar but you know if you look at it you see it but it was so hectic and to really bring the energy of of the saint patty's day parade and people always thought that was all stock footage but we shot all that on a on a separate day and then we shot on location for an, for another day but yeah the concept was was it was very loose but it was it was supposed to be very gritty like that my whole thing was like, I'm going to shoot 35 millimeter and I want it to look like Super 8. But yeah, I feel like you really, you nailed it with that video because it really captures the fun and the essence of that band. But it also, it has, it's a kind of like an aggressive quality to it. It's a little bit, feels a little bit dangerous. And, and it's funny looking at it in the perspective of today because you'd be hard pressed to not go to any average bar mitzvah and not see a bunch of 13 year olds in ill-fitting dress-up clothes, like dancing around to jump around, you know? And it's just so funny how pop culture kind of co-ops things that at one point might have been really rebellious or dangerous or disruptive, and it just becomes part of mainstream culture. You know, does, it, does that ever resonate when you watch that video? Um, what's, what I just find boggling is how, how long... I mean, how, how that video is still 
relevant or, or the video and and the song um the, there was a, I was really into violence and in that that song you know it was it was very you know the, the guys were well everlast came across very very it's a, tough very aggressive video yeah, yeah and and then you know that was at a time when new york city it was like right at the cusp of new york city becoming sanitized by giuliani so the parade was raw i mean the fights you see in there are all real and and the grittiness and you know that was all shit that actually was going on in the parade now that doesn't happen or not not as aggressively because there's no liquor being drunk in the parade but um yeah i find it it, it's become very yeah watered down you know it's, it's become like a theme of college you know the the, the football teams pep rallies yeah pep rallies and bar and, mitzvahs and office parties and i mean just even even the weed content was so disruptive and rebellious back then and yeah it's like now what we it's, used to have to blur out was was shocking the the amount of imagery or like you know someone doing a gesture had to be blurred out or or there was so many different things that we had to actually worry about now it's kind of like that's that's nothing yet. Yeah, you can buy pre-rolls at the deli downstairs. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, so I, I want to switch gears for a second. I'm, I'm curious about your relationship with some of the subjects that you've shot. Because, you know, taking pictures is such, a, it's such an intimate process between the photographer and the subject. And, you know, I was personal photographer to Sean Combs for 10 plus years. So I got to travel with him. And Sean she, Puffy Combs. Yeah. No yeah. way. Yeah. We went to the same Catholic school. He stayed. I got kicked out. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I was his personal photographer. And so I traveled with him on and off for, um, you know, 10 years and oh, we wow. overseas. And, you know, so I got to document these really intimate moments, whether it's the birth of his twin baby girls or the weapons trial or, you know, him and Jennifer Lopez or him and Kim Porter, you know, rest in peace. But as much as I wouldn't say that we're friends per se, I feel like we'll always have this really unique bond between the two of us because of these like experiences and these really intimate moments that we shared together through these photos. And I'm, I'm wondering, is there any similar connections with any of the artists that you've shot? Like you maybe don't necessarily talk to them, but you, you both understand that you shared something really unique together. Um, I mean, I've, I've photographed Pharrell so many times that I, f I feel like for a moment I was, you know, bumping into him and, and working with him in Australia. And then I'd bump into him in Japan and then I was in Virginia and then I was in New York and then he was here in the other room. And, you know, like he's, he's one person that I felt he's always going to remember me, you know, and there's, there's not a whole lot of people that I'm like, they're going to remember my name, but you know, then there's certain people like, Oh yeah, he can't forget me. You know what I mean? I'm trying to think there's, there's so many people that I've, I've crossed paths with that, it's just such an interesting and intimate experience having your picture taken, you know, and, and it, it creates some sort of, I think it creates a unique bond that even though you may not be in each other's life, assuming, yeah. assuming you get an intimate moment captured, it's like, that's, that's going to live forever. Yeah. I worked with Jim Jarmusch once and, um, I remember I was really, I was really nervous. I, I don't, I was always, I think I'm always nervous. I'm just like a nervous Nelly, but, um, Jim Jarmusch's uh, team, they were like, you know, he's very particular. He says, you can only work with him for 15 minutes. You can only do this. You can only do that. He doesn't take email. He doesn't, you know, you can't call him. He's very analog. You know, he's one of those people that like, has someone, someone reads his email. I think he, he's one of those people that, that they really don't, like they, he has a pen and a paper and he writes everything down. Anyway, so I did a portrait series for a Japanese magazine and I was like, you know what? There were all these rules. I was like, I'm going to shoot him 8x10 Polaroid. He's very analog, so I was like, I want to do an 
everything like analog. analog yeah. So I think I did like 10 eight by tens of him. And when I started going through it, it was like three and three locations, but I could only do like two or three shots. And it was a real, you know, you know, eight by 10 and you know, the workflow doing it on, slow. on Polaroid. It's like you're, you're shooting it and then you got to process it on location. And, 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 you know, we had a very limited time, but he saw all the trouble I was going through and he saw the results and he told the PR person like, Hey, don't worry about it. like he, he let him, let him do what he's doing. He's doing great. Like if he wants more time, he could have more time. And I remember I was like, oh wow, that's that's really dope of him. That you know he recognized the process and he was he was allowing me to more than triple the time that I was doing and and get the extra shots and and properly set them up and light them and and I was like you know afterwards I was like thank you so much you know like I thought we were gonna have to rush through this and I wasn't gonna get as much as I did. I mean, there's a, a bunch of other people that I've, I've worked with for years, like, you know, the beat nuts that it's, it's great when you work with someone and then, and then they're like, Hey, you want to hang out? You want to have a beer? You know, you want, you, Hey, wanna, I'll come over to your party, you yeah. know? So I always find it. When work friends become yeah, friends. Yeah. It's like, I never expect it, but it's like, if it happens, I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, like Norman Reedus. What am I saying? I'm, I'm totally blanking. I photographed Norman Reedus for a magazine. I don't even know, 13 years ago, maybe? I photographed him for a Japanese magazine. It was actually Stussy Clothing. I mean, Supreme Clothing. And I hit up a friend of mine and I was like, hey, I, you know, I have to photograph different artists and uh, you know, creative people and I'm putting them in Supreme Clothing. And this was like at least 13 years ago, maybe 14 years ago. And my friend was like, yo, Norman Reedus, he's a, you know, he's an aspiring actor, da-da-da. He's with Helena Christensen. And, um, you know, went to his house, met him, we vibed, I photographed him, I, you know, he had a gorilla suit, <laughs> put that in the background, he had a little cat, I put him on his shoulder, we went up to the roof, did some portraits of him and his kid, and then I maintained uh, a friendship with him. And then years later, I'm, I'm like shooting on his TV show and, you know, traveling the world with him. And but it was, that's 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 probably like the the one person that I, I photographed and it turned into a fourteen a friendship. year friendship. That's really cool. So I saw LCD sound system last week, and it was it was really interesting watching James Murphy sing "Losing My Edge." And you know, for the listeners, if you're not familiar with that song, it's a great track. You should look it up. But it's like a really kind of funny and sardonic take on somebody who is unequivocally an arbiter of cool having this harsh realization that they no longer have the ear to the street and that there's this generation of kids that are kind of coming up behind them, like nipping at their heels, you know, and it was particularly interesting watching him sing that song literally 20 years after he wrote it, you know, but the, the theme still resonates. And, you know, I'm wondering, like from your perspective, as someone who's been involved in so many really interesting and iconic youth culture moments, whether it's like Stussy or Supreme or Bape, or your work with the Beastie Boys, or other hip-hop artists. Like, What does aging out of being young and in the mix look like and feel like? And and how do you do that grace, <laughs> Me, Me being a 56 well, no, just, and uh, feeling like, yeah, because have I, I lost like, my edge? No, but I feel like you, you've, you've, been, you've done a really good job. You know, you're a dad, and you know, we're all becoming people of a certain age. Um, but you've done a great job of not being that kind of cringeworthy balding dude constantly talking about back in the day or the good old days, you know, like what, what's, what's, what does that feel like? Um, I'll tell you, uh, let's let that siren pass. 
Um, I hate, I hate, was it, is it being nostalgic? Is like, there, there was an old friend of mine and all he did was post shit about the eighties and how, you know, like he was living in the past too much. And, and I think he, there's a lot of people that they, they get stuck, you know, you, a lot of these aging skateboarders, they, they live too much in the past. And, and I like to try to just keep doing new stuff, you know, just keep trying to come up with new ideas and come up with uh, trying to, you know, do the research. I, I like, I'm going to bring up Stanley Kubrick again because he, I've studied Stanley Kubrick a lot. And one thing he did was he, he kept his, even though he was living in England, he kept his finger on the pulse of what was going on everywhere. He bought every single magazine periodical and he always had his finger on the pulse of what was going on. Even if he didn't travel, <laughs> He knew what the fuck was going on in New York City. He knew who was shooting a BTS of a music video. You know, like he was looking at Vibe magazine or Volume in the beginning. That's what it was called. And and it's just like reading and kind of being a, a person that being hungry, right? Being, you have a real. It feels like you have a, you you continue to still have a thirst. Yeah, for, I'm, I for think creativity it's creativity and for. But I think it's being newness. competitive. Also, it's just like like I I see a kid. Writing like if I'm writing my fix, I mean my knees aren't shot yet. But if I'm writing my fix and I see a young kid, I'm I'm gonna fuck with him. I want to ride. I like I want I want to be competitive. You know, it's like you want to beat that person to the light. Like I want I still have that. And I meet when I was transitioning to digital, and I'd I'd meet these young kids that were like like hot shots, and I would befriend them, and then get some ideas of like how they were getting getting that recipe on that digital image. You know, it's just like. You know, I want to I want to be around someone who's doing something, and then try to pull what I can out of them. Being being a bit of a vampire, but it's like I want to be someone that that's not lagging behind. And there's a few people I know that are friends that they're just, you know, they're so lost in technology. They 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 can't catch up, and and I feel bad for them because I don't feel like I'm doing anything new. But I'm I'm trying to figure out what the next camera is and what the next package and you know. When gimbals came out, I was messing with gimbals first, and and you know, like I wanted to have a gimbal and wanted to run around with it and test it. And now I'm kind of like, you know, I see these guys buying them now, and they act like they're hot shots. And I'm like, I was doing that shit in the very beginning, getting these bootleg gimbals from China, and then I was like, I'm over it. And like drones, I was like, oh yeah, I crashed drones, you know, six seven years ago. But it's like it's just like being hungry, and you want to be at the forefront of things. Well, I guess, how do you keep that hunger, I guess, is the question. You know, when you have, you don't have, I assume, the same disposable time that you used to, to hang out and be part of a scene. No, but I will. Dad. I don't, I, I'm, I'm in a momentary, it, it's, it's funny you say that because I've been under, with the pandemic and having a, a new child, it's like I've had my limitations, but I can I can sense that once I have more time to to meet new subjects and have new inspirations or you know going somewhere and being inspired like that's I think that's the key is like finding finding inspiration going out and like walking the streets and finding something that you you know discovering someone or something that inspires you it's like walking across the street one day I saw a cute little kid like a little 13 year old kid that just come out of school and I took his portrait and I was like this kid has style I like this yeah. kid and uh, now he's, you know, Lucas Sabat. He's like, you know, he's a thing. Idol, you know. He and and I remember, not that I discovered him, but 
it's like I just saw a really cute kid. I was like, hey, let me just take your portrait. And I took his portrait and he was just like wearing a little cute hat and, you know, he had some style. And I was like, oh, this kid has got a little edge. And now, you know, he's he's like a man of the world icon, little style icon. Um, and he's a grown man. But it's just like going out, you know, it's like when... And New York is great for that too, yeah. because you could take a walk to the grocery store and you're going to see a hundred different people wearing a hundred different things and different skin colors and trends. And it's just, it's a really rich environment to be inspired by. That's, that's, that's what the wonder of being in New York is that you could just walk around from neighborhood to neighborhood and, and be inspired, even though New York's got gotten really watered down. But you, if I had the time to just walk around and shoot and find people and find new locations, I would have like a whole, my, my resurgence of my career right now. I mean, I'm shooting when I can, but I don't have the disposable time I used to. So, I mean, you've, you've lived in the same general neighborhood for, you know, 25, 30 years now, or somewhere around there, back when downtown actually, you know, really meant something. What do you miss most about that day, either that part of your life or that part of the city? What I miss about New York City is that there was a, a true separation of neighborhoods, right? So if you went to Alphabet City, Alphabet City was like a shithole, drug dealers, it was like dive bars, everything was kind of like shit, homeless people in Thompson Square Park, you know. Then you went to Chinatown and it was just Chinese. And you went to Little Italy and it was Italians and Dominicans. And, you know, when you went to Soho, it was like art galleries. And now everything's been watered down. You know, like you used to go to Times Square and Times Square was, I want to see porn movies and I want to play, you know, video games. And now it's just the city has become so watered down and, and so many places that were kind of like staples of, of New York, you know, like diners and bars, the, everything has, has, has disappeared. And Lucky Strike, Florent. Yeah, you yeah, know, you name it. It's, all it's the stuff on Lafayette Street, Prince Street. Yeah. Well, we always like to end this podcast by, by asking the guests to, to plug something that they're not personally involved in, but they feel isn't getting enough attention, whether it's a book or a movie, a photographer, an artist, a cause. Is there something you want to shout out and really give some shine to you, you feel like you're really inspired by right now? I'm really into Andor. <laughs> I've, been, I've been promoting Andor like, like if I'm with the publicity team. <laughs> Like from Disney. I'm like, yeah, I really feel like, like you must watch Andor. You really must watch Andor because it's the best thing that Disney has ever produced. It's actually, Dis it's Star Wars for grownups who don't want lightsabers. But um, cancer awareness. Um, no, I've, I've, I, I recently lost one of my best friends uh, to colon cancer <clears throat> and I have to go for colonoscopy and I've been avoiding it for 10 years. And I, I really feel that if you're in your early 40s, go get one and don't put it off and do it, do it for do it for your family, do it for the ones you love, not so much for yourself, but you know, I mean, do it for yourself, but don't put it off like I have for 10 years. And and side note, um, it's actually not nearly as uncomfortable as you would think. And oh yes, that propofol is that what? How do you say it? Propofol. Propofol. It's, it's what drug. Michael Jackson used to use to sleep. Dude, after I got mine, it was such. I was like, this drug is such a miracle. I actually looked up the drug afterwards because I was like, what kind of drug puts you out to the extent where they can like film a movie in your ass and then you wake up forty five minutes later refreshed and just walk home? Like it's crazy. 
it's, it's probably as long as the new avatar is. That's yeah. how long they were in your ass. <laughs> and the funny thing is like, the worst and you, you didn't get, even know it. You don't know it. And so you have to drink all this stuff the night before. And I was nervous about that. And it's like, it wasn't really that gross. It's mostly you mean the doctor gave you a few drinks before? Like, yeah, to, to, to butter me up. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a kiss? <laughs> I, I Did you get a call the next yeah. day? <laughs> but like, you know, hey, so Justin, you, you got to drink. How was it? You got to drink like a, a gallon of, of this stuff the night before. And I thought it'd be much more disgusting. I thought like, you know, old pennies and gumballs and stuff would be coming out. It's like, it's not, it's not that it's long, just, the long story short, go, go get a colonoscopy. Go get a colonoscopy go it, and, and, uh, and you'll feel better that you did. Yeah. Well, Shady, thanks for taking the time out, man. I, I feel like I've been running to you in the street, you know, weekly for years and years now so it's awesome to finally get a chance to get inside your head and hear some good stories so I yeah man i want to do this again you. i want to interview you next time all right we'll do part two yeah all right homie good all right, thank you thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in if you enjoyed this episode do us a favor and take a minute to rate review follow or subscribe this episode of the plug was produced by peter buckingham with theme music by andrew van weingarten and dan drohan Sound design by Brad Worrell for Soundwag and logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.